Welcome to this uh, budget special, you might call it episode 72 of The Professor and the Hack. We've been locked up, locked down and, uh, <laughs> and looking at, um, well, we know, terrifying numbers, PVO. Yeah, look, absolutely terrifying. But interestingly, people outside of things like the unemployment rate, which actually isn't as bad as it was predicted to be, it's still staying in single figures, even though it's not good and certainly not good if you've lost a job. Those terrifying numbers, are, you know, you're mostly referring to things like the, the levels of debt and the size of the deficit and to some extent the downturn this calendar year. But people aren't as terrified about the debt numbers as we perhaps would have been in years past when politicians made so much of debt when it was actually so much less than it is now. We seem to have turned the corner in terms of political concern about debt. That's partly because we know we need the debt. I think it's also partly because interest rates are so incredibly low that debt is less scary when your interest bills are nowhere near as bad as they might be in other periods. But then, Hugh, the, the threat, of course, and this is actually something that hasn't been talked about that much. One of the threats is that high levels of debt is one thing. It can be damaging to an economy going forward if you don't get rid of it, depending on the circumstances. But the thing no one's talking about is interest rates go up eventually. And when they go up, boy, this debt will seem a lot bigger because that interest bill could double or triple very, very quickly. The technical questions here, but and we'll get on to the, I guess, the more human aspects of the budget. But mm. The point you make is a fair one that uh, economists have said, look, if you look at the cost of servicing this debt, it's still round about $13 billion a year. Uh, billion dollars a month seems like a lot of money, but it hasn't gone up substantially when you're looking at, say, close to a trillion dollars debt as it was at 300 billion. Why? Well, because of the reasons you've just said, basically giving away free money virtually uh, so the debt doesn't cost us anything. But to, just to hone in on your point, if we get into a growth area, and interest rates start to rise again, that goes on just not any new debt, but all the historical debt suddenly has to pay that extra interest. And that's where it becomes crippling, doesn't it? Exactly. And it's a little different to the way it works for people like you or I, if we have, have a, a home loan, for example, uh, we, without a fixed mortgage, you know, interest rates change in a moment in time when the cash rate changes, the banks respond and then up they go. It's a little different for government in the sense that they, they finance themselves with what they call government bonds predominantly. They get purchased on the open market. A whole other quirk is that they're getting bought at the moment by the Reserve Bank. So that's, you know, there's almost a printing of money going on, but that's a whole other debate. We've talked about that before. But government bonds can be purchased for as short as a month or as long as 10 years. Um, it's when they mature that they have to be rolled over and more debt accumulated. So what the government would be wise to do at the moment, frankly, would be to try to lock in as longer term debt bonds as they possibly can, because at the rates that we're at, uh, that is just an absolute bonus. And that's what they're doing. So it's, it's not quite as instant as, as it is for the rest of us if all of a sudden interest rates spike. But having said that, Hugh, there are so many government bonds that have been issued over so many years for so much debt. They're constantly maturing. At the moment, we're actually doing well when that happens, because at the moment, every time a government bond that's you know three, four, five, seven years old, 10 years old, when it matures and gets rolled over, we get rid of a bond that has a rate of you know maybe five, six, seven percent and replace it with one that's sometimes got a 0.5 percent rate or something like that. So uh, we're actually reducing the size of the interest bill 
bizarrely at the moment, even though we're uh, we're increasing the debt at the moment because of that reality. But anyway, we're, we're a bit off topic from the budget. No, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, uh, it is those well, the internal stabilizers that work in the system. But let's get to the politics and the fundamental proposition. The, the, the treasurer and the prime minister believe that come election year, uh, we will tolerate all kinds of levels of debt uh, if people are feeling secure in employment and feeling comfortable about that. Oddly enough, I think Labor didn't get uh, much reward when we dodged the GFC because people didn't realize that they, their jobs were so much at risk and had been saved by that debt. But is the money, and this is the key thing, is the money that we're borrowing, this pile of borrowed money, is it being spent, in your view, in the best possible way? Yeah, it's a fascinating debate. I mean, on the first part of that, Hugh, I think it's interesting, you know, the counterfactual. As you say, Labor spent a lot of money, nothing like this, but a lot of money to try to stave off the GFC. They did it at the advice of Treasury, by the way. Uh, the same Treasury, if you like, that are now advising the government that they're saving X number of jobs this time with the decisions they're making. Uh, the Treasury back then said, if you spend this amount of money, you'll save X number of jobs. That was rejected by the coalition in opposition at the time. Labor was either successful in doing that because we didn't have the job losses that were predicted or were worried about, or they overspent and therefore panicked and spent more than we needed to. That's the narrative that came from the coalition. You can never prove it one way or the other, but one thing that didn't happen is the unemployment rate didn't spike or at least not significantly. This time, the unemployment rate has gone up. So Australians know that there's a problem. We can see it globally with the pandemic as well, even though we could also see it globally with the GFC. But because we've suffered somewhat with the rising unemployment rate and people losing their jobs in the hundreds of thousands, that's almost helped the government then throw a lot of money at the problem and not be disbelieved and be believed for the problem. So where to now? How are they going with it? Well, my concern about what they're doing is I don't disagree with the business incentives. I think they're a really good play to try to get businesses to invest, to hire people through things like the youth wage subsidy, although that can have distorting impacts. I know you want to talk about that. But there's there's the, the harder one is the job keeper side of it because you've got job keeper and job seeker. Now, they're reducing job seeker because they don't want to have a disincentive to people who are unemployed to find new work. The problem with that is it can feel heartless because dropping it anywhere near what new, the new start rate was is not something people can live on. But I can see some arguments that you don't want people to rest on their laurels. You want them to go out and find work, which is why they're incentivizing business so that those jobs are hopefully there and the economy gets a growth uptick. Job keepers different though. Take job keeper off too quickly and that actually costs people their job and that's really where i think labor should focus they're partly focused there but that's really where the focus and the debate should be because you remove job keeper and all of a sudden the unemployment rate spikes uh, and if the government's aim is to keep the unemployment rate down like it or not as expensive as it might be with it with some caution because you don't want to prop up zombie businesses but they need to look at maybe keeping job keeper beyond march next year so my apologies if you listen to this. We're all doing it very remotely uh, from parts of Canberra this morning as we bring you this. If there's problems with audio, again, we, we apologise, but we thought we'd press on anyway. Um, uh, so to that March 28 date, that's when JobKeeper ends. 3.5 million Australians are on JobKeeper. You're suggesting it might have to uh, be continued in some form. Otherwise, that becomes a, a kind of a cliff. But it's not 
written into the budget that they're going to do that. They don't have the money mm. for it. So presumably if that's going to happen, it's going to be a further, you know, hand into the, you know, what does it go down to the reserve bank and print more money, I suppose. But um, uh, do you think that the government is basically working on the belief that there'll be some uplift in energy and optimism and in, in confidence that's going to happen before March to get us over that very clear line between job keeper and no job keeper? Well, they've got a very bullish set of growth estimates for the next calendar year. They're saying that the, there's rubbish by the way, being collected behind me, if that's what people can hear somewhere outside. Um, the, there's an interesting line there because they're saying this calendar year that the economy is going backwards by just under 4%, but it will go forwards next calendar year by just over 4%. Now that is bullish in and of itself. Uh, them assuming that unemployment is going to peak at around eight and a half percent by the end of this year and go down over the following years, it just it, that, that assumes therefore no impact from when JobKeeper comes off, which I think is highly unlikely. Uh, I think their their path of least resistance politically would actually be to reevaluate at the end of March if they're wrong, or even frankly if they're wrong within days of JobKeeper coming off admit defeat and get it back on to try to stop unemployment spiking. That's certainly what Labor will be looking at. But then all of a sudden that all has to get written into a May budget next year. Politically, though, I don't think they suffer any damage there. A little bit of humiliation and a little bit of a, I told you so, debt isn't as bad as you've once told us when Labor was in power. But the coalition, as we've talked about before, Hugh, I think they win in a contest uh, over a fiscal discussion, fairly or unfairly. Yeah, it's interesting also on those growth figures of 4.75%, the expectation we're going to bounce back that strongly. When I put that to Josh Frydenberg, he said, well, our major trading partner is forecasting 8% growth. So whether that's enough to to drag us along, uh, once again, it is a reminder that uh, we are dependent on China, uh, an increasingly sort of fractious relationship. But, um, you know, all these figures are still dependent on China. Let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back to you in just a moment. Hey, Husey here. You can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Channel 10's hit show. Well, now there's more to get. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington, the National Affairs Editor for Channel 10, our political editor, Peter Van Onselen. Uh, with us, uh, The Professor, of course. Uh, so, Peter, in the, the detail... A question was put to me yesterday under the job maker hiring credit, as it is called, the government is allowing businesses that take on an extra headcount. If they hire someone under 30, they will get a subsidy of $200 a week. If they hire someone between 30 and 35, that is $100 a week. Someone made the very good point to me yesterday. What does this mean for job ads? If a company wants to hire and take advantage of this $4.9 billion scheme, do they advertise, here's a job, uh, we're looking for someone under 35 or someone under 30. Are we going to have age discrimination advertising or is that too much? But if we're not going to have age discrimination advertising, do you put up an ad and say, look, here's a job and people over 35 are applying for it uh, under mutual obligation that may be required to apply for it. And yet there is no prospect of them getting it because the employer is looking at going, mate, I'm not going to hire someone if I'm not going to get the $200 a week subsidy. Are we creating, and uh, for all the good intentions of trying to get uh, young workers off 
unemployment and into jobs, and they are good intentions, is there a risk that we're creating a kind of a, an age discrimination line in employment uh, in the coming months? Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, I, I think the short answer is yes, but then we unpick the details of that. I mean, first up, we know, as we've talked about before, young people and women are disproportionately impacted by this pandemic when it comes to losing their jobs. Young people in particular, youth unemployment is always an issue. Um, and then, it, of course, it then gets doubled down on as an issue in the pandemic. So, yeah, it's a good idea as a concept to try to find ways to incentivise business to hire young people to alleviate youth unemployment. Of course, we know that losing your job is a more significant and serious problem for older people because they can't find another one often uh, and they have more support structures that their job is dependent on, family, mortgage and so forth, than younger people traditionally do. But that's a separate discussion. Now, what happens here, I find it fascinating because we have age discrimination laws. Actually, Susan Ryan, the recently passed away Susan Ryan, who was a pioneer of gender discrimination, became an age discrimination advocate as the age discrimination commissioner uh, in, the, in, in her post-parliamentary period. She'd been a Hawke minister. Um, now, is this against age discrimination laws? Well, I guess governments, if they pass legislation, can carve out exemptions. So I suspect as part of this, assuming the budget passes and those elements around the youth wage subsidy do pass as well, which I would have thought they will, then they will legislatively get their way around age discrimination laws. But were it not for that, a, a business advertising for younger people, or even if it didn't advertise, but then it did discriminate and pick young people because it had an eye to that subsidy coming from the government that you mentioned, Hugh, any or all of that would be against age discrimination laws if it could be proven to be by uh, you know by people seeking employment who did not win the job because of it. But I suspect the crafters of this legislation will be well aware of those age discrimination laws and will simply have uh, exemptions to bypass them, which once legislatively approved, have the authority to do just that. But it's a fascinating question. It is. And, and, and the late Susan Ryan, I'm sure, would raise a quizzical eyebrow at the notion that age discrimination laws might be needed to apply for people at the age of 35 and a half. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, so it goes. So ultimately, what, this is, I guess, the heart of the budget, which I think is interesting, is that Josh Frydenberg basically says it's for business to create the jobs. We create the conditions. We're going to support you, but it's for business to create jobs. It now becomes, in a certain sense, not the traditional sense, but a confidence trick. People must believe. You don't invest in a business. You don't hire people unless you believe that there are greener pastures up ahead. Uh, but people are not investing in their business. And if they're not hiring people, there can be no greener pastures. So we have these $31 billion in temporary measures. They're not exciting for people who are not running businesses, but they're critical to this, the tax loss carryback, but also particularly the notion that companies basically up to $5 billion turnover a year, there's only a handful of companies bigger than that in the country, will be able to totally claim tax deduction on expenses uh, straight away, the whole thing. And that by implication is effectively like a short-term corporate tax cut in effect, if you use it and they're hinging so much of their expectations for employment and growth 
on this notion that businesses will rush in there to take this opportunity to buy new plant and equipment and also to hire people and that that itself will have the flow on effect of people going if, the, if you need to buy a particular piece of farm equipment that that's good for the companies and the jobs that are dependent on selling and maintaining that farm equipment is this a house of cards model do they have an option but to do this sort of thing it seems smart but what how much confidence can we have that business is going to rush in to these temporary opportunities to, to set up their businesses more strongly? I really like that we've got a liberal government choosing this pathway because it philosophically in a time where they're breaking their own rules around debt, for example, which I always thought was a political construct rather than a philosophical one. I really like these measures to incentivize business and to try to, get business investing again because it does fit into what the ethos of the Liberal Party should be. But as you rightly point out, that is a different discussion to whether you necessarily think it is going to succeed or not. It's a valiant effort, but it only succeeds, as you say, if businesses actually take up the cudgels of it and, and, and have the confidence or even the capacity to be able to take advantage of those sort of tax benefits that are temporarily, potentially only temporarily in place. So, what are we talking about here? This is the heart and soul of the budget. It's just not the sexy part that tends to get talked about because it doesn't directly affect individuals' lives the way that income tax cuts or the way that wage subsidies can or the way that handouts do as well, quite obviously. So, but when it comes to business, businesses are getting massive in dollar terms, tax concessions essentially in what the government is offering, but they only take them up if they have the ability to, or if they have the confidence to, when they look at this wrecked recession riddled economy, and that's the big unknown. So the government is giving them every chance, businesses I mean, every chance to be able to lift Australia out of this recession and do it as painlessly as possible by virtue of what was contained in this budget to the tune of tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars worth of concessions. The sort of thing that Labor would ordinarily rip them apart for therefore helping business, particularly the bigger end of business up to that 5 billion mark. But I just don't know if it's going to work, but I'm not very comfortable with a Liberal government going the alternative route, which is to not do that, but rather to just spend more by way of handouts rather than by way of concessions, because that is not a philosophical direction that the Liberal Party should go, because they say that is enlarging government rather than hopefully growing the pie of via growth within the economy. So I like that they're doing it. I, I have serious reservations whether it will work or not but that's because of the times we are in i don't have those reservations because of the construct of the way that they've put it forward and that part of it is a big credit to josh Frydenberger's treasury he's copying a lot of stick at the moment here and there in between what he's announcing uh, for areas where he falls philosophically short for areas where he spends too much whatever it might be but on this stuff he has clearly and his team consulted with tax professionals business. He's got into the nitty gritty of understanding what the hell do you guys think you need to be able to thrive and therefore hopefully drag this country out of this recession. And he has answered that call in what is in that budget. The business people I've spoken to and the tax professionals I've spoken to are almost floored by the extent to which he has put these elements in the budget, you know, in an applauding way, they're surprised. So if it doesn't work, it won't be for want of trying, Hugh, because 
boy, they've gone all out on that stuff. And that has been very underreported other than in the business pages. We don't have a lot of time left, but, but something I have to take you to, obviously the whole thing is hostage to the virus and, and how the world manages the viruses, vaccines and so on, further outbreaks. But in pure politics, we are due an election. It could be in 12 months from now. It could go into 2022, May or even a little longer, but sometime in the next 12 to 18 months is an election. How will the two parties enter this election? on the basis of those expectations, the forecasts that are in the budget, and the measures that the government has put forward to the Australian people? Well, I, th I think, uh, at least for one election, <clears throat> my view is that the coalition get away with potentially mishandling uh, the attempt to get us out of recession, and with spending an enormous amount, uh, even withdrawing some of that support um, with people begrudgingly saying, well, we believe according to the polls that you're the better economic manager, so we put our faith in you. So I, I, I've talked about this before. I almost feel like they can't lose when it comes to the next election, even vis-a-vis -vis this pandemic, where the virus fight is at, where the economic structures out the other side of the virus are at. I think that they're on a, on, on a winner and Labor's on a hiding to nothing almost no matter what. It changes at the election after that, obviously, because then you elongate the pain potentially. Uh, if things are still going badly. But I feel like an election being due anywhere between, you know, sort of, well, 12 to 18, possibly 24 months, um, I think in that construct, uh, Scott Morrison is an unbeatable superhero uh, of political campaigning, uh, even if he hasn't done a good job, which he may well have. Hmm. Tough times for Anthony Albanese. You've got, you got to feel for the bugger. Um, but there are many other jobs around the place that uh, we're thinking of as well. Now, for the next little while, this may be a uh, somewhat occasional uh, professor in the Hack podcast. I'm off to the United States to cover the U.S. presidential election and all its fun. But where we can, we'll try and jump in together and, uh, and, and get a, a, a virtual podcast together. Hopefully, you'll bear with us on this um, interesting times ahead, I think, for the and country. Hugh. Let me jump in, Hugh. You, you stay safe over there. Um, and boy, fascinating. I can't wait to chat to you either during it or at the other side of it uh, from all your observations uh, in the thick of it there covering that contest. But you know, more than anything, stay safe, Hugh, and, and we'll chat when we can. I'll be heavily muffled under many masks for sure. We'll talk soon. Take care, <laughs> PVO. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.